But when Satan tempts us with pleasure and he, he provides something pleasurable, it usually leads to a trap. I'm going to talk this morning about the worst type of temptation. Now, the word temptation and test can be used interchangeably, and, and I'll explain that as we, as we go ahead. Um, but I want us to, to just know from the beginning, from the outset, that this pleasurable thing that Satan promises us is usually a situation we get ourselves into that leads to a trap. Now, Paul spoke about that with regards to people who want money. He said the following, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. And so when we experience temptation, we've got to pause for a moment because it's a potential trap. It's a trap placed there by Satan. Remember, this series is called Seeing the Unseen. We're trying to understand how Satan operates, right? And this is one of the key things he does. I went hunting on a farm, and I, I might have shared this with you before, but it was in the eastern cape of southern Africa, and it was a massive game farm. I mean, we were hunting kudus, and on the, way, on the way back to the farm, and this farm is so big that the owner has to, he had to buy himself a chopper to be able to fly around from one place to another on this, this piece of land. So massive piece of land, and he was farming with mohair um, sheep. And so that's his industry. He had about 50,000 sheep. Um, for producing wool. Incredible, incredible farming situation there. But he had a problem because on the furthest points of the farm, he would put up these, um, these little ponds that would then um, f provide water for his sheep. He, he can't go to the sheep every day. It's like, it's like 10 miles that way through the bush and, and it's, it's, it's difficult roadways and he's not going to fly every day there with the chopper to go give them some water. And so all over the farm he had these, these, these places where the sheep could go and drink water. Water. And then he arrived at these places after two or three weeks and he finds a bunch of dead sheep. And then he realized, but there's no water in these little ponds he set up. And so there was a, there was, there was a problem somehow with the, the piping that would go from the, the boreholes to, to, um, to these watering holes. So he, he traced back where the pipes would go and he found that the, the pipes had been dug open and torn open and the water has been drunk out and he's, he's lost a lot of um, sheep. And so what he did is he realized, well, somebody's stealing the water. Guess who it was? It was the mighty African baboon. Now, I, I find it so interesting. People in America say, you know, I'd love to see some monkeys. Uh, even when Wes and them came to South Africa, I think it was strange for them to, to know that there's monkeys running around in our neighborhood and tearing apart our dustbins and, and, and the junk inside of it. And let me tell you this, a monkey is an annoyance. You might look cute. I'll take a squirrel any day over a monkey. He gets into your house, he threatens your dog, and he eats the stuff out of your, out of your kitchen. Believe you me, they make a mess wherever they go. And so these baboons, they, they are a pest. So the, the baboons came, they tore the pipes because they're too lazy to walk to the watering hole. But they can sense somehow that there's pipes here. And so they dig open the pipes and so... This farmer had to get away to make sure that the baboons stopped doing this. So he built a big cage with fencing all around and at the top, but at the top, he put in a, an oil drum that's cut open at the bottom and at the top. And he put some food inside and he took oil and he rubbed the inside and the outside of this, this drum with, with, with oil. So the baboons would come, they would see the food inside, they would climb on top, they would jump through this 
oil barrel that's open at top and bottom, like a funnel, and they would eat the food. But guess what? They can't get back out again. Because if they try to grab onto this, that's the only way out, the entrance and the exit. There's only one way. They slip and they couldn't get out. So on the way back from hunting, we stopped. He said, I just want to go check quickly how many, if there's any baboons, if it worked. We arrived there. There was like 20, 30 baboons in this cage. And I saw the most horrific thing I've ever seen in my life. These guys just took out their guns and they killed these baboons. And that for me is such a vivid, vivid illustration of what Satan does. He gets you into liking something. He gets you inside. You go inside all stupid and then he gets you into a mess that you should never have been in. This is a beautiful um, plant, flower thing that you find in Australia. It's called a sundew. Now, if you look at that plant, it, looks, it, looks, it doesn't look that pretty, but it's got these drops. And it looks like drops of water, right? And it, it, it looks so inviting. So what happens is the, the bug would fly and he would go sit on that because it looks like there's an overproduction of nectar here right? And so he goes and he sits, but what he doesn't know, what the fly doesn't know, and the ant doesn't know, and the bug doesn't know, is that that nice and shiny um, water drops, it's actually glue. And so when the, when, when the little flea goes and sits on it, his feet are stuck, and he tries to get out of it. And when the plant senses the vibration, guess what he does? He starts closing in, and he actually eats that bug. That's exactly how temptation works. There's a promise. It looks great. You go, you take a seat, and then Satan takes over. This is in uh, a, a newspaper clipping from the New York Times. 1987, uh, two boys, I think they were about 11 years old, they, <coughs> they, 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 they really like their, their teddy bears. And so they wanted to, because the teddy bear is so fun and nice, my kids also love teddy bears and would sleep with them at night, um, wanted to go find out whether a real bear feels like that as well. So they went into the, um, the Prospectin Park Zoo in New York, and they jumped over the fence. They, they got into the, the zoo, and they tried to go cuddle a polar bear. <laughs> it's a horrible story, but... Obviously, the one boy was mauled to death, and that's the newspaper article of that. Exactly the same thing. You think it's fun. You think it's going to work. You think it's going to be nice and cuddly. That's the promises Satan makes. But in the end, it kills you. The goal of temptation, the reason why Satan tempts us, is to make you believe something. Essentially. To make you believe something. For example, if you have this money, you will have a better life. Life will make more sense. It will be great. All your problems will be gone. And so he poses this opportunity to get the money. To make you believe. It's like those kids. They, the, the marshmallow makes you believe that it tastes great. That's what, the worst thing is to go and smell it. It makes it worse. Don't smell it. Because then you're going to want to eat it more. And so temptation gives us a promise. If you obey all the rules, you miss all the fun. Have you ever heard this before? This is a typical statement that Satan will provide for us. If you obey all the rules, you'll miss all the fun. It's a lie. It is designed to mislead you into a trap. 
It's a seduction into an ambush. It's using potential pleasure to trap you. Now, some of you have been on the planet for a while. I can see by the color of the hair, right? Or the lack of hair. You've been on the planet for a while. You know this is true. Using potential power to trap you is a very good way of describing temptation. So this is a common understanding of temptation. But there's a different type of temptation that we don't see as temptation. And that is the worst temptation I'm going to talk about today. It's called a trial. When Satan uses pain, not pleasure, to make you believe something. Let me just recap that quickly. Sometimes Satan uses pleasure. He offers you something great. He says, have some of this. And when you go for it, you find yourself in a trap. And then you experience what? Pain. But sometimes Satan doesn't take that route. He starts with pain and he ends with pain. To make you believe something. Now, you might ask the question, well, what exactly could that be? Why would Satan offer you pain? Why would he send you through pain? And maybe the question is, can he send you through pain? Can he send a Christian through pain? You'll hear today, yes, he can. And yes, he will. And why would he do that? Because he wants you to doubt God. That's the temptation. Pain and suffering is temptation designed to make us doubt and question God. To make us believe something. God doesn't exist and God doesn't care. I've heard this many, many times. People suffer, they go through pain, and what do people say? Well, God doesn't exist, and if He does, He doesn't care about me. And so you create all of these ideas in your head about God, and Satan loves that. Because if He can get us to doubt God, oh, He's, he's really one. And to make it even uh, more clear, look at Epicurus, the ancient Greek philosopher, what he said. And this explains it perfectly well. Is God willing to prevent evil, but not able? Then He's not omnipotent. Is he, able? is he able, but not willing? Then He is malevolent. Is He both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is He neither able nor willing? Then why call Him God? This is the extreme doubt that pain and suffering causes in us. Now I know some of us here today, me too, we've had pain and we've had suffering. And we're going to talk about a few things about that today. And maybe you've been somewhere here. Well, I'm going through this. Where's God in this? Does He even exist? And if He exists, then obviously He's not a good God for letting me go through this. So I want to recap just quickly the temptation process. Do you remember the... And for those of you who haven't been here um, the last few weeks will not know this, but I'll just recap it quickly. It seems like God is in control of everything. God is the ruler of the world. But Satan, well, God is the ruler of the universe, but Satan is the ruler of the world. Remember, he's the ruler of the kingdom of the air, Paul said. Jesus called him the ruler of this world. So he rules this world. And that, that's contradictory for us because God owns the world, but Satan rules it. And how does that work? Well, God gives Satan permission to rule. God gives Satan permission to tempt us. To produce a specific outcome. And he can do that. He's God. And so God uses Satan 
to produce the type of people that God wants in eternal life. Now, the same thing God would do when it comes to pain. That God will allow Satan to cause us pain. Let that sink in for a moment. This seems to be how the temptation process works. God says, yes, you may touch Michiel. You may hurt him. The Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And, whoa, whoa, listen, let's think carefully. Listen to this. And lead us not into temptation. Who leads you into temptation? Look at the text. And lead, we're asking God, don't lead me into temptation. But what? Deliver us from who? The evil one. There you have that whole sentence. That's how temptation works. Lead us not into temptation. Like, like saying to God, God, Lord, please, I know you can give Satan some power over me. Please don't lead me too close to this guy. Rather deliver me from him. Keep me far away from him. That's in essence how this temptation works. And I want us to, to, to pause for a moment and just think. When you go through pain, when you go through suffering, when you go through disease, God has allowed Satan to hurt you. Why would he do that? Well, you know the book of Job, right? We're going to read that in just a moment's time. Please turn this along, actually. We're going to read Job chapter 1 and verse 2. To give us a little bit of a hint, <laughs> look at C.S. Lewis. Why would God send us through this pain and suffering and allow Satan to, to have this power over us? I suggest to you that it is because God loves us that He gives us the gift of suffering. And we're like, what? A gift? Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Pain is God's megaphone. God is, we don't listen. If you, if you, don't, if you don't listen, then you must feel, right? You see we are like blocks of stone out of which the sculptor carves forms of men. The blows of his chisel, which hurt us so much, are what makes us perfect. I just realized I don't have a Bible with me and I'm supposed to read the Bible. Does anybody have an NIV I can borrow? Thank you, brother. Sorry about that. Let me give you another quote here. If you want to know what's inside a tea bag, put it in hot water. And so God says, okay, I want to see what's inside Michiel. I'm going to let Satan handle him a little bit. Let's see what comes out of him. Let's see how he handles it when life gets tough. God brings men into deep waters, not to drown them, but to cleanse them. And so there's a cleansing process that happens with suffering. Now, let's look at this, this text, Job chapter 1 and 2. Um, and especially I think this will be valuable for those of us who's never read it, and uh, it will give us a nice understanding. I'm going to read both chapters and just pause here and then just make a few observations. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man, man among all the people of the East. 
His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, this is key. Perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. So this was Job's regular custom. This is a theme that goes through chapter 1 and chapter 2, and I think the whole book is about this. The idea of cursing God, either with your mouth or with your heart. That's what Satan wants us to do. Curse God in your heart or with your mouth. So one day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. And he was what? He was an angel too, right? The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from, bro? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Like what? A lion, a roaring lion. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Look at what Satan says. Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely do what? Curse you to your face. That's what Satan wants. He wants us to curse God to his face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then. Listen carefully to this. Everything he has is in your hands. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Can you imagine God says that to Satan about you? You can go do with him what you want. But just don't touch his body. And then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now he's happy. You know, because he's got, he's got permission from God to do to Job what he wants to do. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabians attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. What would you do if you go home today and your whole house is burned down? And your car broke on the way. And yet you walk home. Then you get home. Your house is burned down as well. And somebody had killed your dog. Can you imagine? Well, let's look at what this guy does. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. And this is the funniest thing for me on the earth. Then he fell to the ground in worship. What? You tear your clothes, you shave your hair, and then you go worship. 
Isn't that the last thing we would want to do? Well, thank you, God. May your name be praised and may you be glorified. My house is burning, but I'm praising God. Wonderful. This is an incredible person. And this is what he said. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. This is epic fail. Who fails here? Satan fails because he made a bet with God. He said, you know what? Let's hurt him a little bit. And you'll see, he'll curse you to your face. And Satan's like, ah! Every time we critique God or criticize God, Satan won. And we lost. But Job has a second test. Chapter 2, on another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. And then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Sometimes we suffer and we can't figure out a reason. Guess what? You're not the first person. Yes, Job. There was no reason. We'll come back to that. Listen what Satan shouts. Skin for skin. And he's right. A man will give all he has for his own life. But stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. Touch his body. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. Make him sick. Make him want to die. But don't kill him. Do you, do you get that? Satan has the potential to make me sick, and he has the potential to kill me, if God allows him. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. That must have been an ugly scene. He's got boils all over his body, his head is shaved, his clothes are torn, and he's sitting on a heap of ash. His wife said to him, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. Who do you think spoke through her? He replied, you're talking like a foolish woman. Yes, you are. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. So a few things that come to my mind. What was the purpose of this painful trial and temptation? We've discussed it. Satan was hoping to elicit words from Job that said the following. 
Curse you, God. That's what it's about. Let me put so much pain onto him that he's only that he's tempted to curse God and then to die. The second question is this how painful was this trial? Well, I think it's pretty clear. He lost all his money and possessions. They say in today's terms he lost about fifty-six million dollars in, in, in this time of his life, and apart from yeah. This is one of the areas that I think Satan often and over and often and over and over tempt us in when we lose money. When we potentially might be in a position where we struggle financially. Margaret Thatcher said, you may have to fight a battle more than once to win it. And this money and getting money and losing money and getting money and losing money and getting increase, not getting, losing a job and, and, and finances play this zigzag with you in your life is one of the greatest temptations that's placed in front of us. And often that's what draws us away from God or draws us closer to God. Because when I don't have money, what do I do? Then I go to church. Well, I need God because I need money. Then you have money, everything goes well, and then what do you do? Then you stay away from God's people and, and church again because now you've got money. And that's maybe one of the reasons why we always stay poor. Because God's like, okay, when you're poor, you seek me. So I'm not going to give you money anymore. Because you're incapable of handling it and keeping faithful to me. So there was the money and possessions issue. There was the death of loved ones. Here was the death of his children. I, in, in, in Cape Town, there was a, a big house church movement, and we met some of the people. And we heard about this, this couple that had quite a number of kids. And their five, I think it was a five-year-old son that had drowned. When I met them, <clears throat> I could see the mom was distraught. I mean, I would be. And this is what they said happened. They were having worship at home. It was a house church. And the kids were playing in the yard. And they, they didn't notice that the young boy, the five-year-old, wasn't around. And, but at the back, there was a swimming pool. And the water was out. The water was about this deep. And it, it hasn't been used in quite a while. And so the water was green. You know, it had this, um, I don't know what you call the green stuff. I don't know. Algae, algae. Algae, yes. And the kid had got, climbed into the pool. And at the, the deep end, well, the water was only about this deep. It slipped in that, that algae. And it tried to get out and drowned. Picture this, ladies and gentlemen. You worship God. While you worship Him, your kid is drowning in the pool. Directly after worshiping God, you go look for your kid and you see the scrape marks in the algae as your child tried to get out. I said to this woman, what do I say to her? What do you say? How do you deal with this type of pain? I mean, if there's ever a moment that I might consider cursing God, it might be that moment. It's like, Lord, you could have made sure the, 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 that my child didn't go to that pool. You could have done that. You could have prevented that. While I'm worshiping you, this happens. Yeah, I don't know how to deal with that. This is hard. And some people go through this, ladies and gentlemen. I know a family who lost a five-year-old child. They will not set their foot in a church. They, God, they hold God accountable. 
Job did not only experience the death of his loved ones, he then developed a disease. Well, he was given a disease by Satan. Perhaps one of the greatest struggles is to love and trust God after you've given Him your whole life. And then He, uh, then he lets you undergo such tremendous pain and suffering that He gives you something like cancer. Can you imagine what it must feel like if, you, if your life ebbs away, you've given your whole life to God, and those last few months you undergo the worst pain imaginable as your lungs start filling with liquid and you experience the pain as, this, as, as the cancer rips apart the neurons in your body. And still in your mind say, Lord, I bless you and I honor you. It's extremely difficult. Extremely difficult. Before we move into a next question about the text and then conclude, let me just recap quickly. We're talking about seeing the unseen. We need to see what lies behind our suffering. And I want us to get this today. Satan's angels can inflict pain and death and disease on Christians. He can do that. Obviously with God's permissions. Christians, deeply faithful Christians, are not immune to these attacks. And sometimes we think we are. Well, I'm not going to get a deadly disease. Oh, my child won't die. God is the one overlooking my life. Yes, He is. But I think His relationship with you is much more important than any of these lifely pains. Listen to these texts. Remember what I told you. This is Jesus. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. John 15, 20. Who persecuted Jesus? It was people, but who inspired the people? It was the spiritual force, the spiritual realm. Those same spiritual beings are on the planet. They will hurt you. They will hurt us. They want to. They are in first gear. They are ready. What about this one? In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The demonic realm will persecute us. And they'll use people to persecute us. What about Hebrews 11.37? People who were faithful to God, they were put to death by stoning. Well, God will never let His people be stoned to death. Well, have you forgotten about the cross? So people were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. These are the types of things that happened to God's people who believed in God. In your struggle against sin, Hebrews 12 is 4, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. He's saying to them, the point will come where you will shed your blood. Who's the spiritual forces behind the scenes that would kill and hurt Christians? It's Satan and his demons. Jesus was killed. John the Baptist was killed. James, the brother of John, the friend of Jesus, was killed. Matthew 24, verse 9. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted, and you will be what? Be put to death. Is God the one doing the killing here, or is it Satan and his buddies? And you will be hated by all nations because of me. What's the lesson? When you lose money, or you lose your stuff, or your stuff breaks, or a loved one dies, 
or you get a horrible disease, I want you to never forget this. Remember this for the rest of your life. Do what you have to do. But never give in to the temptation of cursing God. Do what you have to do. You've got to tear your clothes and shave your head. Do what you have to do. Never curse God. Because if you do, Satan has won the battle. This morning, I read a, a statement of my aunt. She's, she's developed um, breast cancer. And she's undergoing chemotherapy. And we found out that just after we came to South Africa. And I read her post on Facebook this morning where she said, you know, many people when they are diagnosed with, with, with cancer, they ask the question, why? Why me? Why do I have to suffer? And she says, it's never even come up on my mind. I glorify God regardless. Well done, good and faithful servant. And it's easy for me to stand behind this little wooden thing here today and to say, yo, yo, if I, if I lose a child, you know, just continue never cursing God. And, and, and when you develop cancer that causes pain, no, I'm not going to uh, curse God. It's, it's easy to stand here and say it. But ladies and gentlemen, I ask you to think carefully. If this day ever comes, to remember this lesson and say, I, I will shout and scream, but I will refuse to curse God. Three things about this question. What or who did Satan use? Firstly, Satan used nature. He used nature. In verse 16, while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens. The scholars tell us that this was lightning. So lightning bolt killed these people. We read then, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. That is in verse 19. What do we see here? Satan can use nature to hurt us. That's what angels can do. I personally, we were in Thailand, in Phuket, in 2013 or 14. I can't remember. And in 2004, I don't know if you remember, if you know about this, but there was a massive tsunami that swept into Phuket. And killed thousands of people. And we asked the people there who, who was there during the tsunami. We asked them, so what was it like? And they said it was horrible. And the most horrible part was not when the waves struck or the waves. What the horrible part was like a few weeks later, the bodies started landing up everywhere on the shore. Thousands of bodies. And there was a stench that went through the air as these bodies have been rotting in the ocean. And now they've come to shore. And if you go to Phuket... You will see it's one of the most godless places on the planet. Godless. Prostitutes. Drugs. The whole place is full of it. I don't think that tsunami was just something that happened by nature. I believe that was sent by God. In many ways, similar to, um, to what happened in New Orleans with Katrina. I've heard that it's one of the most wicked places, New Orleans. And sometimes I think this, these natural events come into the world. To wake us up. And I think sometimes God allows Satan to use nature to discipline us. And to see what we are made of. But not only did he use nature, he used evil people. Satan used evil people. Look at this, verse 15. And the Sabians attacked. And verse 17. And the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels, etc. What do we see here? Satan can use people to hurt us. All types of people. Satan loves using people that he has control over to hurt us. Um, you know, I've heard people say, I don't want to be a Christian. Because that person in the church hurt me. 
That person hurt me in the church. Well, who won there? Who won that battle? Satan won that battle. He's, he got exactly what he wanted. He used somebody you could control to get you away from God. You fool. Satan just defeated you. Lastly, Satan uses good people. Who is the good person in this story that Satan used? His wife. Why don't you just curse God and die? Luckily, he recognizes it and he said, You're talking like a foolish person. Shall we accept good from God and not bad? And if you go read the rest of the story, we don't have time now. But if you look at his friends, they're also being used because they keep on saying to him, No, 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 no. You, deserve, you must have sinned. That's why you're suffering. Or your children must have sinned. That's why you're suffering. But they were wrong. This was all orchestrated by God. He can do what he wants. Sometimes the people closest to you are used by Satan to get you off track. Listen carefully to the people closest to you. We see that in the garden, don't we? Eve misleads Adam. The Great Wall of China is a gigantic structure which, which cost an immense amount of money and labor. When it was finished, it appeared impregnable, but the enemy breached it. Not by breaking it down or going around it, they did it by bribing the gatekeepers. Sometimes the people in our lives that we think have the mind of God, at moments don't have the mind of God and could lead us in the wrong way. So be careful. Let me conclude. First Peter, dear friends, First Peter 4 verse 12. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This came to my mind because sometimes we as Christians, we think it's strange when we get sick. We think it's strange when we go through pain and suffering. It's like, well, this is weird. And Peter says, don't think it's strange. It's not something strange. This is a test. God has allowed Satan to do this to you. What are you going to do about it? That's the question. Secondly, God is not asking you to figure it out. He's asking you to trust that He already has. So when you go through a difficult time, don't think it's strange and weird and don't try to figure it out. Just know that God has already figured it out. There's a reason. And lastly, a gem cannot be polished without friction nor a man perfected without trials. Every difficulty we go through is there to make us perfected.